Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and I'm going to talk a little bit about today about um, the Liberal Party um, in Great Britain and the First World War and there is a Liberal government up to 1915 and then um, due to a series of crises that Liberal government um, is replaced by a Liberal-led coalition that involves the, includes the Unionists or Conservatives as, as they are known now. Um, But before we get into that, um, it's important to have a little bit of backstory on the Liberal Party. Some of you might be studying this, a great many of you will probably know this, but let's let's talk about it anyway. The Liberal Party came to power in 1906 um, on a a landslide victory, uh, promising social reform, and uh, between uh, 1906 and 1911, they fight a series of titanic battles with the House of Lords and particularly um, the, the Conservative peers in the House of Lords um, over Lloyd George's People's Budget. Um, the uh, basic premise of the, the People's Budget um, was that uh, social reform and uh, military expenditure, uh, Britain is undergoing an arms race, Uh, with Germany over the the issue of dreadnoughts. The two things cannot be afforded um, through the standard means of taxation and therefore there must be taxes upon wealth, particularly on on land. Um, And there is a a hue and cry that Lloyd George is a a socialist, that um, the country is is, is becoming less democratic. And Lloyd George... um, Goes on a, a, an epic tour of um, the of, of working class audiences across the country, saying, "You know, you, who is running this country? Um, the the government or the lords? Um, they must pay. Um, you know, they, a, a duke must get in his hand in his pocket to pay for dreadnoughts and to pay for things like um, old age pensions and sickness insurance and those kinds of things that were being offered um, among, under the the liberal reforms." That doesn't spare the Liberals from three crises. Now, there's a very famous book, of which I'm sure probably a whole bunch of you are um, aware, George Dangerfield's The Strange Death of Liberal England. And he puts forward a thesis that um, 
Before the war, three crises are mounting. There is a potential civil war brewing over the issue of home rule in Ireland. This is something, this civil war issue is something, uh, reading um, Christopher Clarke's Sleepwalkers, uh, that much of the rest of Europe seemed acutely aware of and seemed to almost be predicting. Um, so there's a, there's a possibility of a home rule between uh, a, um, a civil war over the issue of home rule between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland. Then there is uh, militant uh, un- syndicalist unionism um, and the, the spectre of possibly a general strike emerging the legalisation of unions in 1871 and then the Trades Disputes Act of 1906 which uh, gave unions basic immunity from litigation if their strike action caused employers to lose profits uh, following the uh, Taft Vale case which had um, made the railway unions liable for any uh, loss of profits that the rail companies experienced. And during this period, as a result of the Tapvale case, obviously the, the Labour Party emerges as well. So the, the Liberals find that they have um, a, a new contender for the crown of socially reforming party. The third um, crisis, perhaps of slightly less uh, seriousness, but a, one that is starting to become violent... Um, is the issue of female suffrage. The uh, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and the Women's Social and Political Union um, have spent the best part of the previous decade, and in the NUWSS's case, uh, the two decades beforehand, campaigning for suffrage. And um, the radicalisation of the movement has seen, has seen hunger strikes, the Cat and Mouse Act, and smashed windows, and um, uh, Lloyd George's own um, house being burnt down by uh, suffragists. These three crises, Dangerfield argues, are put on hold by the war. Um, The war comes along and the uh, instincts of trade unionists, of Ulster unionists, and uh, indeed um, Catholic nationalists, and the um, suffragist movement is to reluctantly rally behind the Liberal government I give it the support that, uh, if, if not the love, um, and then to hopefully gain something from the, the the peace once, you know, hopefully, obviously Britain is victorious. The motivations of all these parties are slightly more complex, and I won't dwell on them on those um, because I want to just give you that little bit as some kind of context, because the Liberal government. Um, you know, assuming the Liberal government has been given this stay of execution, it squanders it appallingly in the first two years of war. Now, to some extent, this is understandable. We are facing a war that is unprecedented in human history. There has been nothing of this magnitude ever before. And it shows, um, the, the strains show on the Liberal government and the Liberal government's relationship, particularly with the army. The uh, issue of war supply is the first uh, key area um, that, um, causes, that, that causes crisis for the Liberal government. The um, ministry responsible for um, supply is the, the War Office. The War Office is uh, under the uh, leadership of Herbert Horatio Kitchener. 
And Kitch is an interesting character in the first week or two of the war, because he's the first figure, really, to stand up and say, this is not going to be a short war. This is going to be a long, drawn-out conflict, and it's going to be the likes of which we've never seen before. It's going to be a war of attrition, and it's going to take years to win. It's going to take millions of men. But having made these kinds of statements... The uh, the war office who is um, that he presides over does very little to actually um, equip um, the new armies that Kitchener proposes. Kitchener um, does an excellent job of raising um, huge new armies, and he the the British expeditionary force is um, sent to France. It's a tiny ten division army, six six infantry, four cavalry. And it is a, a kind of a gnat compared to the might of the French army and, and the German army. But it, it is professional and um, it's non-conscript. So um, it performs, for, you know, punches above its weight considerably. The British are traditionally um, the nation that puts most of their efforts and energies into uh, naval power. Naval power is where um, Britain has its advantage. Britain in the First World War... And in the Second World War, um, are, you know there are significant voices. Normally, people like Churchill, in both wars, that argue fight a war at the periphery, fight in places like Gallipoli, fight in places like North Africa in the Second World War. Um, don't engage the enemy head-on because you haven't got enough manpower. Use the navy effectively and uh, fight from the sea. Fight with amphibious landings and then whilst you're doing that, whilst you're cutting off the enemy's supply lines and slowly choking them, form coalitions with a major continental power like France or a major continental power like Russia. They can do the heavy lifting and you can support them to some extent on land. Now, the the Kitchener thesis flies in the face of all of this and um, you know, um, the, the great model for this war at the periphery idea is obviously the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but uh, Kitchener um, raises new armies and he raises particularly PALS battalions, normally from uh, northern towns, um, where the young men are told that if they want to, they can join up and fight as PALS battalions where they will all train and fight together so they'll have the people they know. Uh, Sadly, the um, effect of the PALS battalions on uh, local communities was devastating because once one pals battalion was wiped out at the Somme or Ypres, the entire community would lose every every eligible young man that that lived, by and large. So there was um, a devastating effect, and they were um, it's quite poignant in many ways. You see photographs of pals battalions raised from rugby clubs, cricket clubs, football clubs, universities, this kind of thing. All these young men in, in 1914 together, ready to go off, and you know they were coming home. So there is a huge amount of bureaucratic chaos within uh, the war ministry, and the uh, the war ministry are um, uh, stuck really with ideas about um, uh, shell supply. The um, shell, the, the supply of shells, isn't really enough to last till Christmas. And the uh, even when after the war ministries uh, supplies get out gets moved over the, the, the supply roll gets moved over to uh, Lloyd George's new munitions ministry, uh, which is established the following year, the munitions ministry um, still 
doesn't manage to bring the level of shells um, and artillery uh, needed up to full levels, up to the levels that the army actually want until 1918. That's how bad shortages were throughout the entire war. The uh, British Army goes to war with just over a thousand machine guns. Um, Field Marshal Haig thought two were needed per battalion, whereas Lord Kitchener thought maybe four. And I think Lloyd George said something pithy, as he was tended to do, something to the effect of, you know, take what Haig says and double it, square it, times it by ten, and then double it again, and that's the figure you need. So by the end of the war, there are about a quarter of a million machine guns. With Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The British Army. The idea of tanks, which really are something pioneered long uh, after the, the, kind of the trench deadlock has begun. And really as a result of the deadlock, uh, again, the War Ministry sniffs at and thinks they're kind of silly contraptions and that... There's, uh, there's nothing like a good old cavalry charge, really. So there were men who were um, really thinking that, um, thinking about fighting the last war. Now, one of the reasons for the shell crisis is because the, uh, the way that artillery usage was envisaged at the start of the war was that um, the artillery would fire periodically um, and they would su- and, and to support uh, the the movement of of men. You'd have armies moving across the battlefield and armies advancing strategically backward and forth, or hopefully not backward, but anyway forth to engage one another. And the artillery would be used from time to time in order to support this. However, when the artillery become fixed pieces behind the trenches, and we're in a situation of trench warfare, and the only way really to attack the enemy, other than going over the top is to use constant artillery, then um, the, the the cannon goes from being a periphery piece of equipment to being the central means of attack. And the British Army becomes artillery-based uh, as a result of the, the First World War. In fact, it causes, I think, more casualties than any other uh, weaponry that the British have. 
The problem, of course, is how to supply this vast new demand for artillery. And by 1915, there are clear reports in the Times uh, and in the Daily Mail, uh, both Northcliffe papers, that there is a huge shortage of, of shells. And the um, um, uh, uh, Field Marshal Sir John French is the person who's leaking all this back to London. The King, King George V, um, was partially involved in, in this chicanery. King George V saw himself, really, as the, the patron of the army. The army officers believed themselves to be the king's men, not really the prime minister's men. And they served under the prime minister, they, they served British prime ministers under sufferance. Uh, king George um, was a, a figure who was there to be consulted, um, to advise and to warn, as, as is protocol for uh, uh, modern British monarchs. But he viewed the, um, uh, the the appointment of army officers really as something that he could have an input in. And he um, spoke up vociferously on behalf of people like French, but he's actually part of the, uh, the, the, the team that sacks French in the end. And he is also somebody who um, helps to channel um, the grievances of generals uh, in the right direction. Asquith, throughout this period of time, is a surprisingly laissez-faire prime minister. Um, the war is being run, really, by uh, Kitchener and Churchill, um, to a lesser extent until he becomes Minister of Munitions, Lloyd George. Lloyd George, at this point, is the Chancellor. Um, and a little bit by um, Kitchener and Lloyd... Well, the Thorn in both Kitchener and Lloyd George's side, uh, Jackie Fisher, who until 1915 held the uh, office of First Sea Lord. So this little triumvirate um, are partly responsible for uh, Gallipoli. There is a, a need, um, once the uh, Western Front has uh, ground to a halt and trench warfare is the, the, the mode of, of fighting, there's, it's seen that there is a need to break deadlock, and uh, the Dardanelles campaign is dreamt up in order to knock Turkey out of the First World War uh, and really create uh, what uh, Churchill believes will be a, a soft underbelly uh, approach into, uh, into Europe. Um, and there are moments where it looks like it's going to succeed. Hindenburg, in his diaries, uh, believes that um, had the um, British been able to land at Alexandretta, then Turkey would have been knocked out of the war and Germany would have been terrifyingly surrounded. If uh, British and Russian armies had been able to meet up, uh, that possibly would have been the, the end for um, for the uh, German-Austrian axis. But um, mercifully, the, the, the a dispute with the French prevents this from occurring. The Dardanelles campaign, you know, I don't want to go into that too far because it's a topic of a, a separate podcast, I think, really. But the, the Dardanelles campaign ends in uh, disaster. It ends in Churchill being forced to resign in disgrace and go and do uh, a, a stint with the Black Watch on the Western Front. Um, it ends in uh, Fisher leaving the Admiralty um, and uh, being uh, he had huge misgivings about the um, the campaign to start with and thought it wasn't going to work um, but he, he re resigns in disgust 
and leaves um, Kitchener um, hugely marginalised. And the problem as well is that you have this mounting scandal over the uh, the shells um, issue, the the ammunition crisis. And Kitchener goes from being this uh, quite visionary figure, this impressive former Imperial War hero, the man who uh, called the war just right in 1914 and knew exactly what was going on, to being um, a, a, an increasingly irrelevant and rather embarrassing figure um, who is uh, not seen as being a safe pair of hands. Asquith is quite happy to channel uh, all the bad news towards these three figures anyway. It suits him fine. And um, he he doesn't realise that at a certain point in the future um, he, he's going to make a, a catastrophic blunder. The blunder that he makes is by giving Lloyd George um, command of the new Ministry of Munitions. He knows Lloyd George is a spectacularly effective talented, skilled man who um, understands um, organisation, he understands business and he knows how to deal with the unions as well and he knows how to keep them, um, the trade unions sweet so that there isn't any outbreak of industrial unrest. Um, I mean there is considerable industrial unrest but there's not um, sufficient industrial unrest as that as may threaten a, a major strike or, or perhaps even God forbid a general strike. Lloyd George knows how to compromise, to conciliate. And Lloyd George um, creates um, a... Through the Defence of the Realm Act, he manages to control large swathes of British industry, the British defence industry, and he knows he's able to requisition, uh, requisition at cost, and so he pays good money for it, all the resources he needs to build a new munitions industry. He himself, um, the ministry itself, builds 281 factories. It has 50,000 um, staff by 1918 and commands 3 million workers. So this is the kind of the scale of the operation that, that wins the war. And it, it's, it's very much, the First World War, is very much a, a war based on logistics and economics. And that's how it's won. Um, if the, you know, the Germans are... Um, only really defeated on the battlefield in 1918. They are triumphant in most theatres between now and then, uh, between 1914 and 1918. But that kind of doesn't matter, unfortunately. This is the banal logic of war, that um, the uh, militarists within the German army never quite fully grasp. You know, her uh, Heroic bravery uh, has got nothing on the ability to mass-produce arms. So Lloyd George... Um, manages to um, come to a compromise with the trade unions which um, enables them to accept unskilled workers into the workplace who will then replace men who've gone off to fight on the front uh, on the understanding that um, these jobs will go back to returning veterans at the end of the war uh, and there'll be a, a general agreement to try to limit strikes. And Lloyd George comes out of this looking great. He comes out of this as a man with a common touch against the increasingly distant Asquith. So when it finally comes in 1916 uh, over the issue of conscription for Lloyd George to replace Asquith as the uh, head of the coalition, uh, he, he manages to do so with aplomb, and he uses everything, he's um, all the ca credit he's built up as the man who is organising to win the war um, up until that point. The creation of the coalition 
um, by Asquith is really an attempt to shore up uh, a flagging Liberal government. The uh, Unionists are invited in 1915 to join the government and um, both uh, Arthur Balfour and Andrew Bonalore are given ministerial positions. But the, you know, Asquith keeps the, um, the top jobs in Liberal hands. Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, um, Chancellor, anything worth having, really. Um, Bonalore, not really befitting his status as leader of the opposition, is uh, given the colonial office, which is seen by many as being something of a backwater. So they call it a coalition, but it's not really. It's not really a fair partnership between the two parties. It is um, Asquith making sure that he wins the game, if only for a year, because in 1916 he's replaced by Lloyd George, who then goes on for the second half of the war to be um, accredited in the public eye, at least, as the, the man who wins the war. Anyway, I hope you found that useful and interesting. And... Um, I'm going to catch you on the the next Explaining History podcast. We've got some cool stuff coming up. In the next couple of weeks, I'll be publishing a new student guide on international relations, 1870 to 1914. So if you're studying that, keep your eyes peeled. And in the uh, next month or two, I should have the long-awaited Chang, Mao and the Battle for China, which uh, I'm kind of enjoying writing at the moment. Um, And there's uh, a whole bunch of stuff to review, um, some great titles out there. And um, I'll be uh, doing a China podcast special on a, a glut of China books I'm reading at the moment in February, early February. Um, I may take a week off or so. Um, my wife and I are expecting a baby. And so uh, if you don't hear from me for you know a week to 10 days or there's a kind of high-pitched noise in the background, well, guess what? Parenthood comes to us all. Anyway, look forward to catching you on our next podcast. Remember to subscribe and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.